The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We've seen the recent hacks at MGM. Very high-profile attacks that took down operations at some prominent casino uh, operations across the United States. And some of these groups are the very same groups that we looked at as part of the broader kind of lapsus ecosystem of all these hackers who are getting online into Telegram channels and comparing notes. We made note in the report how, yeah, people are focusing on the name Lapsus and some use that name, but it's these sort of overlapping webs of loosely affiliated groups. And and indeed, we looked at some of the the actors behind these, these recent attacks. So the lessons learned from Lapsus are critical to our ongoing defense. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 29th, 2023. The Cyber Safety Review Board was created by a Biden administration executive order entitled Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity. The board reviews major cyber events and makes concrete recommendations that can drive improvements within the private and public sectors. I sat down with Robert Silvers, Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy and Plans at the Department of Homeland Security and chair of the Cyber Safety Review Board to discuss the board's mission and work. We talked about the two reports that the board had issued, one that it's currently working on, and a legislative proposal from DHS that seeks to codify the board in the law and ensure that the board receives the information it needs to continue to advance the overall security and resiliency of our digital ecosystem. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 29th. Robert Silvers on the Cyber Safety Review Board. Before we get into the weeds of the Cyber Safety Review Board, I want to talk about the role of the Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy, and Plans at DHS. Can you tell us a bit about your position and the subject matter areas that come under your jurisdiction? The office I lead at DHS is really the nerve center of the department. We're a big, sprawling department, over a quarter million employees spread out across agencies from the Secret Service to CISA to Customs and Border Protection, the Coast Guard, FEMA, and more. And that's an incredible strength uh, because we bring so much capability, so much horsepower, so much authority 
But it's also challenging to bring together the best of all of that sprawling department. And that's something we need to focus on and do intentionally. And that's what the Office of Policy was created to do. And so when we have really tough problems, our office brings together everyone across the department, plus the White House, other agencies, private sector stakeholders. We say, okay, here's the problems. Here are the best approaches for dealing with them. Here's what we have to do. And here's how we're going to do it. Well, one equity that has been brought to these hard problems, I would say, is the Cyber Safety Review Board. Um, And you are the chair of that board. Can you tell us a bit about what the Cyber Safety Review Board does? The Cyber Safety Review Board was created by executive order. President Biden ordered us to stand it up at DHS when he did his landmark uh, executive order on cybersecurity in May 2021. When there's an aviation accident or rail accident in this country, something called the National Transportation Safety Board comes in, does authoritative fact-finding to see what happened, and then publishes lessons learned for all industry and the aviation community to know what happened, what went wrong, and how can we act together to make sure that doesn't happen again and get safer. We've never had that in this country for big cybersecurity incidents. And the Cyber Safety Review Board was created to fill that very gap. The CSRB is truly public-private. Half the members are all the federal leads for cybersecurity. So we have, in addition to myself, we have the National Cyber Director as a member. We have the heads of cyber at NSA and FBI and others. And half the members are private sector luminaries in the field of cybersecurity. So the deputy chair of the board is Heather Atkins, who's the head of security engineering at Google. We have the founder of CrowdStrike. We have the head of uh, incident response and threat intelligence at one of the biggest cybersecurity companies in the world as a member, and on and on. And so in the wake of significant cyber incidents, you have the best of the public and private sectors coming together, determining what happened through authoritative and deep fact-finding, and then publishing recommendations to the broader community for how we can level up our security to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And it's truly a revolutionary uh, model for cybersecurity. We have already conducted two reviews as a board, uh, and we are just now uh, initiating our work on our third ever review. And so this has really become a new enduring fixture of the cyber ecosystem. So I don't think anyone would disagree that the public and the private sector need to work together on these problems. And the fact that the, the board draws the best as part of its effort is great. But but I should ask you, insofar as there are private sector representatives who get insights into breaches and other significant sensitive incidents, how does the structure or the charter of the board kind of manage these ethics or ethical issues? Absolutely. So first, all of our members, public and private sector members, are under confidentiality agreements. In addition, we have a very strong ethics and recusal process in place to make sure that the board is free from conflicts or even the appearance of conflicts. All members of the board, the federal government members and also the members from industry, have to make full financial disclosures with DHS. We have career ethics attorneys 
who review those, all a person's financial interests, all their employment uh, affiliations. And in the context of a review that we're doing, we are assessing for whether there are potential conflicts of interest. And if there are, we will uh, have the member in question recused from either a part of the review, uh, if that's possible to uh, hive it off that way, or from the entire review. And we've done both. So I note that in one report issued by the board, you and the deputy chair include an introductory message where you say, to advance the overall security and resiliency of our digital ecosystem, we applaud the application of this highly effective lessons learned model from other industries. With the discovery of major software vulnerabilities and gaps in our capabilities to effectively mitigate them, we believe this effort will help drive improvements in our overall cyber resiliency. Would you say that that statement is kind of a good encapsulation of the mission of the Cyber Safety Review Board? It is, and I'm biased because I co-wrote it, but but that is that is the mission. You know, this is a board that is created to fill a really significant gap because before this board was created, when there would be a major cyber event. The victim company would often conduct an internal investigation. There might be a law enforcement or a regulatory investigation going on somewhere. But none of those were for the benefit of everyone to learn from what happened and to have transparency around what happened so that the world can understand, to remove the mystery from it. And that now exists. The CSRB's client, if you will, is the public. It's the cybersecurity community. And so now around these harrowing episodes like the Log4j vulnerability that we studied or lapses, a bunch of teenage hackers, uh, crime spree across some of the best defended companies in the world or now the next review that we're going to be doing of recent incident at Microsoft Exchange Online, we're going to work to understand what happened, identify weak points in the ecosystem and talk about how to improve them and secure them. It's not about punishments. The board isn't a regulator. We don't have the authority to write regulations. We don't have the authority to mete out punishments or fines. It's about looking forward. What can we do to improve security? So you've mentioned two reports that the board has completed and one that is being worked on now. And and I want to talk about each of those reports. But before we get to the substance of those reports, can you talk about how a topic or issue for the board is chosen to be studied or analyzed? The Secretary of Homeland Security or the Director of CISA can commission a review for the board to conduct. The board does not uh, select its own matters to review. Another point that I think is relevant for those uh, who have questions about ethics and uh, conflicts, the board doesn't select its own reviews. Uh, the secretary or the CISA director can do so. And then the board goes to work based on that charge. In my experience, the secretary and the director are looking for incidents that have a very high impact or 
where there are clear lessons learned that can be taken away and that the community could benefit from, or both. And can you tell us a bit then about the process that the board undertakes to study a particular issue, understanding that that the nature of the topic or the threat or the incident is is in some sense going to drive how the board approaches it? So we've really built up an excellent uh, support team under the incredible leadership of our the board's executive director, Abby Deeft to uh, professionalize the staff and the operation so that the members are supported by analysis, open source research, uh, technical analysis. And when we have a new review that is getting underway, we have open source research reports that are provided to all the members to level set on what we know to begin with. We develop together as a board potential lines of inquiry that would be fruitful for us to develop facts on so that we can gain a better understanding. We identify companies, security researchers, government agencies, other experts in the field, including, by the way, victim companies and also foreign government counterparts uh, that might have interesting insight on the matter under review. We reach out to them and request information. We can do that in writing. We can ask for any data or reports they have or ask them written questions. Often we ask them to come in for an interview uh, with the board. And when we have an interview with the board, the room is crackling with insight and thoughtfulness and inquisitiveness. You have members from – it's amazing – from across all wings of the federal government with an interest and luminaries from across industry and the research and and NGO community coming in with their questions from the angles that they think there might be uh, useful inquiry. And we get the presentation from whatever company or researcher or organization is briefing to us. And then it's just conversational with a lot of questions. And sometimes we'll have follow-up questions from there. We've had some reviews where we'll want to talk with the same organization twice because we have follow-ups based on what we learned later. And it's really go where the facts lead. You know, we start with like a roadmap sketch of where the review could go, but that's in pencil, not pen, because we go where the facts lead. And in each review, we've picked up interesting kernels along the way that send us in an unanticipated direction. And as that work unfolds, a picture starts to develop of what happened. And also, the ideas start bubbling up with the board. Here's here's some interesting recommendations. You know, what we just heard, that really lays bare a, a vulnerability in the system or somewhere where we could have uh, improvement by either network defenders taking certain actions or government agencies pursuing certain policy initiatives or Congress legislating. And all that starts to take shape. We take shape. We have really, really collaborative and deep jam sessions as a board where we get together and debate the merits of all these different recommendations and directions we could take them. We're pressure testing each other. We're we're gaining consensus where we can, which we usually can. We're we're making each other better through our suggestions. And it's a lot of work for the members, but I think they've all found it really rewarding. And I think most importantly, 
the work product from the two reviews that we've done to date has really been warmly received in the cybersecurity and network defender and policymaker communities. So we think it's really making a terrific start and has proven its value already. So the first report that came from the board was on Log4j, and it was published on July 11th, 2022. I note that the report describes Log4j as a once-in-a-generation security event. Can you tell us the story of Log4j and why it was described this way? Sure. In December 2021, the global CISO community and their teams had their winter holidays ruined because in the early to mid-December, there leaked word of a serious vulnerability in some very commonly used open source software called Log4j. And Log4j is a tool that, that allows logging capability, that is recording actions taken on a network that was created by uh, open source developers, which means it's put out there for free for anyone to use. And the tool was so simple and so effective that it was incorporated into thousands and thousands of commercially available software packages. Because why would you write your own logging script when there's one off the shelf that's ready to go? Unfortunately, there was a very serious vulnerability in there that was discovered and that when exploited could uh, give very deep network access to an adversary. The word of this leaked out and it set off the biggest and most widespread incident response in cybersecurity history, in my view. And it was also one of the most severe, if not the most severe vulnerabilities in software ever discovered. The board immediately went to work to understand what were the roots of this vulnerability? What, what about the open source software ecosystem? Uh, what was unique about the open source software ecosystem that would create the conditions for a vulnerability in such a commonly used tool to go undiscovered for so long? And what did we learn about how the cybersecurity community comes together and responds when literally everything has to be patched at once. It was an unprecedented challenge. When the board got to work, we heard from 80 companies and security researchers. It's a truly unbelievable fact-finding effort to gain a really rich 360-degree understanding of this incident from the development of the code, talking to the Apache Software Foundation, the open source consortium that maintains that that software library, all the way to end users from critical infrastructure companies, from U.S. government agencies that led the response or that themselves were customers in that they had Log4j across their environment and had to figure out how to patch it. The board came up with some very interesting findings and recommendations. You know, one was that Log4j isn't over. Although a lot of remediation work and patching has happened, 
The board called this an endemic vulnerability, saying that it's going to be with us for a decade or longer because it is so hard to find and is so embedded across so many software packages. And a lot of companies just don't know where they have this code. And so we put the network defender community on notice that this is not something to let your guard down on. In some ways, we're just getting started. And indeed, facts have really borne that recommendation out because if you look at data from some of the leading cybersecurity firms, a huge percentage of data breaches in the last 12 months are attributable to exploitation of Log4j. So this is really going to stay with us. We also learned some really interesting things, really astonishing, about the broader software ecosystem. It is possible now at great academic institutions to get a degree or certification in computer science without ever, ever having taken a course or a component in secure coding or cybersecurity. And we all on the board just felt like that is not modern comp sci education because we need to develop not just the next generation of coders, but the next generation of secure coders so that all this code is written secure by design. And so we recommended that the academic community make cybersecurity and secure coding a required component of any comp sci certification or degree. So, and then there were 17 other actionable recommendations, and the report was received really warmly because of that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. 
and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. The second report from the board, which came out on July 24th of 2023, focuses not on a particular vulnerability, but on a loosely organized group of extortion-focused cyber threat actors. And the message at the beginning of the report, again from you and the deputy chair, includes a reflection on the movie War Games. I, I had to smile because this is a movie from my formative years. For those listeners that may not be familiar, who or what is Lapsus and what has it done? And what about the process of studying the Lapsus group made you think of War Games? So I have to give full credit to our deputy chair, Heather Atkins, 
who's the one that thought of the war games analogy, which was so brilliant, which is typical of Heather to come up with brilliant things. War Games is a movie from the 1980s, very early Matthew Broderick, for those that want to go back in a time machine that way, about a teenage kind of hacker kid who somehow finds his way into really advanced DOD war game machines and quickly finds himself way out of his depth by triggering a simulation that ultimately may lead to real real nuclear war. Now, Matthew Broderick is a good-hearted person in the movie and is really the, the hero and the protagonist. Lapsus is also a band of uh, hackers, uh, many of them teenagers, much more malicious and uh, vicious, really. Lapsus is a loosely organized group of hackers, many teenagers, mostly in the UK and Brazil, that over a period in 2021 and 2022 succeeded in breaking in repeatedly, consistently, to many of the best defended companies in the world over and over and over again. And they weren't using mysterious zero-day exploits. They weren't aligned with a nation-state. They were in it for the lulls, <laughs> as, as the hacking <laughs> community would say. They were in it to sh for notoriety, to gain fame. Sometimes they would demand money. They didn't seem to follow through on those financial demands that consistently. They would consistently go on Telegram channels and boast of their achievements. And they were rampant for a while. Eventually, a couple of their members were arrested and have been tried uh, in the UK. But there's a broader, loose community out there that lives on these Telegram channels, compares notes, competes for notoriety, and is continuing to launch these kinds of attacks. And these attacks have some interesting characteristics. They rely heavily on social engineering. They're calling employee help desks at victim companies saying, oh, I lost my username and password. Can you help me log back in? And they're doing it in a really convincing way. They're using SIM swapping where they are able to essentially trick telecom providers into handing over control of people's cell phone numbers uh, so that two-factor authentication codes can go to the hacker instead of the uh, innocent employee, and then the hackers use that to gain access to the corporate environment. They're often going after their victim company via a vendor. So they're attacking the more loosely guarded vendor, business processing, uh, outsourcing organization, uh, gaining access there, and then using that vendor's trusted access to get right into the heart of the victim's networks. And they've just done this over and over successfully. We learned a couple things 
in the course of the lapsus review. We recommended very strongly that companies need to move away from voice-based and SMS-based multi-factor authentication. It's better to have that those than nothing, but they are beatable. And there's more secure uh, ways of ensuring authentication like FIDO2 uh, and the like uh, that companies really need to migrate towards and government agencies need to uh, push them towards that as well. We also called upon the cell phone carriers, the major cell providers in this country to really harden up when it comes to controls in their own systems to prevent SIM swapping because SIM swapping can absolutely throw a victim's life upside down. And we found inconsistent levels of security and controls at the cell phone providers. We also recommended that the FCC do regulatory oversight uh, of that area. And that's something where we're following up with the FCC. We also identified a lot of recommendations for identity and access management. The report was just incredibly well received. Patrick Gray of the Risky Business Podcast uh, said it should be required reading for all CISOs. The CISO of Netflix has said that the CSRB is the best example of a public-private partnership in cybersecurity out there, period. Charles Carmichael, the chief technology officer for Mandiant and just a luminary in the field, uh, did a, a post uh, commending the Lapsus report and how practical and actionable it is for network defenders. And that to us is everything. That's our customer base, is to make sure this is actionable and real, not abstract or academic. And we achieved that. Now, interestingly, Lapsus seems to have subsided. There have been some arrests. But this broader community still lives on. And we've seen the recent hacks at MGM, at Caesars, very high-profile attacks that uh, took down operations at some prominent casino uh, operations across the United States. And some of these groups are the very same groups that we looked at as part of the broader kind of lapsus ecosystem of all these hackers who are getting online into telegram channels and comparing notes. We made note in the report how, yeah, people are focusing on the name lapsus and some use that name, but it's these sort of overlapping webs of loosely affiliated groups. And, and indeed, we looked at some of the the actors behind these these recent attacks. So the lessons learned from lapsus are critical to our ongoing defense. So I want to bring up one particular recommendation that stood out among all of the critical recommendations. You and the board made a particular recommendation that focused on the prevention of juvenile cybercrime. Can you talk a little bit about that? You have so many young people who have incredible coding talent. And the question is, where are they going to go with that talent? What direction are they going to take? And there's wonderfully productive directions, productive because it can be lucrative for them or because it can be good for society or both, can teach people. And there's also really pernicious directions. And you can go down a vortex of criminal hacking. And in the UK and in the Netherlands, the governments have launched some really innovative 
juvenile hacking prevention programs focused on kids with good talent and finding them and exposing them to other hackers who have pursued beneficial directions for their talent and to encourage those kids onto a good path and away from a pathway of crime. We don't have any kind of prevention infrastructure or ecosystem like that in our country. And so we recommended as a board that Congress work together with the white hat hacker community and with relevant federal agencies to look at this problem and pursue legislative solutions and funding for those kinds of efforts that have blossomed and shown early early promise in Europe. And let's see if we can bring them here. That's a great idea. It's my understanding that the board is currently writing a report on a third topic. Can you tell us about that today? At the DEF CON cybersecurity conference in Las Vegas last month, we announced that the board's next charge would be to examine the recent incident uh, involving intrusion into Microsoft Exchange Online, uh, which resulted in uh, compromise of email accounts of certain senior U.S. government officials and and others, and uh, that that attack has been uh, attributed in the public record by various parties uh, uh, to China, and it raises very interesting uh, and important questions about the security of identity in the cloud, and. The cloud is such an amazingly productive tool and space that has allowed so many businesses to thrive, that has allowed U.S. government to thrive. But there is a lot of concentration risk there uh, from a security perspective. And we need to be all hands on deck to make sure that as a country, we are doing everything we can between cloud service providers and U.S. government agencies and downstream customers to secure the cloud ecosystem. So the Cyber Safety Review Board will be reviewing the recent Microsoft incident. And we uh, also, I'm sure, as we uh, conduct that review and, and conduct the fact-finding, will gain insight into some broader questions about identity in the cloud. And so this is going to be a very uh, important review, and we're going to conduct a very thorough review. And do you have a sense of when that review and maybe over in the report written and made public? You know, I'm glad you asked that. We've had a lot of debate within the board of should we attach timelines or targets for when to complete the work? And ultimately, we've decided not to do that because what's most important is that we go where the facts lead. And sometimes it takes less time and sometimes it takes more time. But the thoroughness is more important than the timeline. And we obviously want to move all our work forward quickly so the community can benefit from it. But we don't have a, a fixed timeline in advance. You know, We'll see what a government shutdown means uh, for the pace, uh, though I'm hopeful that uh, Congress will act in that regard. And, and fulfill its responsibility to fund the government for a million reasons, not just this one. We're here talking about this one. But the board's work is already underway. We have had, to, to your earlier question, 
uh, about ethics. We have conducted a rigorous ethics review led by Career Ethics Council at the Homeland Security Department. Uh, there will be some members who will be recused because of either their financial holdings or their employment, past or uh, current. And that's how it's supposed to work. For example, Heather Atkins uh, will be recused from this review. She's, uh, she's, uh, her employer is uh, Google, obviously a competitor of Microsoft. We will have Dmitry Alperovich, the uh, chair of Silverado Policy Accelerator and the founder of CrowdStrike, uh, serving as the deputy chair for this review. Uh, and we have a small number of other recusals as well that our ethics council have determined are warranted, but we also have a very strong cohort of remaining board members. And that's why we, that's one of the reasons we appointed 15 members, so that even if you have some recusals on a given review, you still have a critical mass of members from diverse backgrounds and professional experiences to conduct the work. So I very much appreciate the sentiment that you want to take the time that the problem demands and and investigate where the facts lead. I, I will say I hope you will come back maybe and talk about the report when it when it does become public. I'd love to. So the last major issue I'd like to touch upon is a proposal for legislation involving the Cyber Safety Review Board from DHS. Can you talk about why DHS is seeking this legislation and what some of the major components of the proposal are? The board was created by executive order. We want to make sure that the board lasts regardless of administration because we think it's a nonpartisan and important new part of the cyber ecosystem. And so we want that stamp of congressional approval and authority behind it. We also think that codifying the board will make even clearer. We already have confidentiality protections that we can offer to companies that voluntarily uh, cooperate with the board, and we've successfully exercised uh, those. But we think that having Congress codify those general authorities particular to the board will only be helpful in gaining further industry buy-in to the approach. We also are asking Congress to provide the board with a limited subpoena authority so that if there is a review in which the board has exhausted efforts to get information and that's necessary and is not meeting with cooperation, the board has an authority to obtain that information as a last resort. We've made sure to design that subpoena, that proposed subpoena authority, so that only the federal members of the board actually vote on the issuance of a subpoena. We view that as an inherently governmental power. And obviously, any such vote would be subject to any ethics and recusal rules on top of that. But we think it's important that the board have that authority. You know, the National Transportation Safety Board has subpoena authority. It's had it for a long time, barely ever uses it. It doesn't need to. Companies know it has it, that it has that authority, but they've established a good rapport with industry where that's not necessary. We think we are well on the way towards having a similar dynamic here with industry. Our cooperation with industry has been terrific. 
as I said, 80 organizations and security researchers talked to us and shared data with us and interviewed with us in the first review on Log4j, 40 in the Lapsus review. And I think that the cooperation will only continue. But there's also some reason to believe that in some instances, a particular victim company may not want to share information with the board. In the Lapsus review, we reached out to about a dozen victim companies based on public reporting. We kind of knew who the, the victim companies were. Half of them came to us and spoke to us, shared a lot, all under confidentiality protections. About half of them didn't. In a review where there's 12 victims, you can still get a really valuable output out of that. You could see future reviews where maybe there's only one victim and the board's success and the ability to get relevant recommendations out to the public is going to rely on the ability to get information from the single victim. And so we want to make sure we have uh, that authority to fall back upon as a last resort. And I presume you've begun to socialize this with the broader private sector community. We have with the private sector community, with Congress, with the relevant committees uh, in Congress and with other stakeholders. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? I think what's really unique about this board, what's really special about it is the caliber of the members. You really have the best in the world from government and from the private sector coming together. And speaking of the legislative proposal, some people have asked, well, should it be these part-timers, you know, these busy federal officials who have day jobs and these busy private sector people who also have day jobs? Or should we have sort of full-time commissioners or full-time board members where that is their only job? But I think what makes this board really special and also gives it its gravity and authority is the caliber of the people on it. The fact that you have the best of the best in government and industry as members inputting so, so that the recommendations and findings are at such a high quality level and then are in such a unique position to implement the recommendations because they are at the wheel, behind the wheel in their relevant organizations. That's truly unique and what I think is in many ways the special sauce of this board. Well, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.